1 Thessalonians 4.13 to 5.11 But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, Peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we come to you in the name of Christ, knowing that he has died and risen again on our behalf. We believe in him. He is our Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you sent him to be our Savior, the Savior of the world. Lord, also we confess and we believe that he will return. And when he returns, we shall be with him and with him forever. We pray, Father, that you'll help us understand these truths of the gospel, both the purpose of his first and especially the purpose of his second coming during these days. Grant us wisdom, grant us knowledge, truth from above, by your Holy Spirit, in all that we think about and all that we study. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The letters to the Thessalonian Christians are two good places to begin a study of the doctrine of eschatology or the doctrine of last things, the end times, the last days. I suggest these two letters because these are letters written in a straightforward manner. They are not written in an apocalyptic manner. They're not written with a lot of figurative speech. They're not written in a lot of poetry. Because when you go to those parts of Scripture, it's easy for you to misunderstand some of the doctrines related to the end times or eschatology, or for that matter, any doctrine. 
So these letters of the Thessalonians are a good source. And that's what we will be studying in this message and in subsequent messages, as well as some other matters. We'll study these letters to the Thessalonians. And I read from chapter 4, verse 13, into chapter 5, because this, I believe, is one section in this letter of 1 Thessalonians. Even though in our English Bibles there are chapter divisions, it is related. They are going to, they, these two passages go together. After all, it was only about 500 years ago that the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, was divided into chapters and verses as we have them now. In the first century, when the Apostle Paul wrote this, it was all one letter, all written together in the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. So, chapter 4, verse 13. What does the Apostle say in terms of what we ought to know for our own encouragement, for our hope, and for our comfort? He does say that he's writing in verse four, uh, 13, so that we have hope. In verse 18, that we might be comforted. And in verse 11 of chapter 5, 5, 11, Therefore encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. This tells us, off, uh, firstly, that this is written not to discourage us, not to confuse us, not to bring ambiguity into the picture, but this is written so that we might have hope, comfort, and encouragement the things that we study about the eschatology or the end times is not for our curiosity, it's not for debates, it's not for quarreling and bickering about what actually the Bible says. The purpose of studying this is so that we might have hope, comfort, and encouragement. That means that there's enough said, plenty said here, that is plain and clear, evident, easily understood by anyone who would just take the time to read these passages in context, he can come away understanding what these issues are. I say this because it's easy in the study of eschatology to get confused, and it's easy to be focused on irrelevant matters, irrelevant issues, things that the Bible does not address. People often write books, they write, uh, produce movies, they have squandered a lot of time, a lot of resources, a lot of money in things that are worthless and insignificant. When, and also, at the same time, they misinterpret things that are staring at them right here from the page. Very clear and obvious interpretations that they completely miss and even distort. I hope and pray that we do not do so. If we study line by line, very carefully, we should come away understanding the gist and the significant parts of these various passages. So, verse 13, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. The apostle does not write, or the apostle does not preach the gospel so that people remain in ignorance, uninformed. He wants them to be informed because when they are informed, the informed believer will live and believe as he should until the return of Christ. And what is it that they did not understand or what was it that some teachers or false teachers were saying that shook them up? It says in 13, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Here, there are those who have fallen asleep. In the Bible, 
To fall asleep is sometimes used as a metaphor of dying. It's used as a metaphor of dying. For example, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, Stephen, Stephen was put to death by his enemies. In Acts chapter 7, he was put to death, he was stoned to death, and it says in chapter 7, verse 60, the last verse of the chapter, And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. It says he fell asleep. Why does it say he fell asleep? We do know he actually died because he was stoned to death. And in chapter 8, verse 2, Acts 8, 2, it says, And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. He actually did die, yet the text says he fell asleep. Just like it says in 1 Thessalonians 4. Why does it say fall asleep? Because death is a metaphor of our temporary existence. Just as we fall asleep in the night, it's temporarily that we are in bed and asleep at night, but then we wake up in the morning. Well, the day of resurrection in the Bible is like waking up in the morning. So our physical mortal death, when we die, it's called sleep because it's temporary. There will be a day when we all rise again from the dead. Whether believers or unbelievers, righteous or wicked, sheep or goats, will all rise from the dead. That's why he says in verse 13 that some of these believers had fallen asleep. They had died. And he doesn't want them to grieve in a wrong way or grieve unnecessarily, grieve with a misunderstanding as to why they fell asleep. I believe what has happened here is because Christ spoke of his imminent return and the apostles preached his imminent soon return, because they preached that, how is it or why was it that some Christians died and Jesus did not return? And then the surviving Christians, they are grieving and wondering, well, what's wrong? If they died as Christians and Jesus has not returned, is there something wrong with them because they died before he came back? Did they fall asleep in death because they did something wrong or they're not true believers? They're, they are hopeless. There's, there's no more chance for them. Is something wrong with them? Why did they fall asleep when Jesus did not return yet? There was some kind of doctrine like this that was existing and confusing and discouraging the Thessalonians. Another example of this same is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord and our gathering together to Him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Here, a spirit, a message or letter purportedly in the name of the apostles or even in the name of the apostle Paul saying the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord has come and you did not experience it. You missed it. You're not uh, included as a part of that gathering together to Christ when he returns. No, the Apostle Paul is clarifying and telling that this is not the case. 
It's not the case that some who have already died have missed out on the return of Christ or missed out on the blessings of eternal life. That's not the case at all. So when we grieve over their death, we're not to grieve over their death as though they went to hell. No, we're not to grieve in that regard, in that way. Verse 13 that you may not, chapter 4, verse 13, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. The rest means the rest of mankind. The rest of mankind has no hope. They believe in false notions of the afterlife. Some of them believe that when you die, that's all. You cease to exist. There's no more body, there's no more spirit, no more breath, and there's nothing, and there's no more conscious existence. Some people believe that. Whether atheists, some Buddhists believe that, some Hindus believe that, that there is nothing after death. In other cases, they believe you'll come back into the world again and again, many, many times, in different forms, and gradually you will be released from this cycle of re-entry and transmigration in the world. These people have a hopeless faith, a hopeless religion. There is no hope in that, but the Bible is not that way. The Bible is contrary to that because the Bible teaches a resurrection from the dead. We grieve over the loss of our loved ones in the Lord. We grieve over their, their loss, but we don't grieve forever. We don't grieve without any comfort, without any hope. We overcome the grief, the temporary grief, when our loved ones die because we know if they are in the Lord, we have a hope that we will be reunited with them. We will join them again. We'll be with them one day with Christ and forever. We have a hopeful religion, not a hopeless religion. Verse 14, how will we participate? Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. In a nutshell, the Apostle Paul explains what the gospel is. If we believe Jesus died and rose again. If we believe Jesus died and rose again, we are believers, we are Christians, we are saved from our sins, we are those who have truly been turned anew or made anew by God, given a new heart. If we have a new heart, we will believe Jesus died and rose again. That is the gospel. There is no other way of salvation. There is no other hope. He is the only way to heaven. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved, which is the name of Jesus. Acts 4.12. No other name among men under heaven by which we must be saved. We must believe He died for our sins. He rose to give us eternal life. And we will experience that same resurrected life that Christ has if we are united to Him by faith. By faith in Him. That is what a true Christian is. Verse 14. If this is the case with us, and this is the case with our lost or, or excuse me, our dead loved ones, then it says in 14, even so, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. You see, between the time of his ascension, or his first coming and his second com coming, many people will die in the Lord. They will believe in Christ. They will know Christ. They will love Christ until the very end. They are those who have fallen asleep in Jesus because they have believed in Jesus. 
What will happen when Christ returns? It says in 14, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. If we die before Christ returns, before his second coming, if we die, our bodies go to the ground, to the grave, but our spirits, they are united to Christ in heaven. They are united to Christ in heaven. To use the example of Stephen, earlier in, the, in that passage, just the previous verse, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, before he breathed his last breath. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knew he was being stoned and he was about to expire. But before he did, his last words were, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That is, his spirit would go to be with Christ, but his body would be buried after he breathed his last breath. And so, Stephen is in heaven as a spirit. And all others in Christ who have already died are in heaven with Christ as a spirit. Invisible, intangible, unseen spirit. And it says in 14 that when Christ returns, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. When Christ returns from the sky, from heaven, when he returns, our lost loved ones in the faith will come with Christ at that time. They've already fallen asleep, but they are with him. They're going to come with him. Verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Now what the apostle is teaching here, and when he says we, he means his, um, his companions, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, who were his traveling companions when they visited Thess- Thessalonica, the city of Thessalonica. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So Paul is writing it, but he's saying we because they are familiar with these other brothers, these other saints, Silvanus or Silas and Timothy. This is the testimony, the unified testimony of these missionaries, but also all of the apostles. They say this by the word of the Lord. They're not asserting their own opinion. They're not speculating. They're not saying what is man's opinion. Fleshly, weak, finite man's opinion. They are saying it by the word of the Lord. What they're writing here is actually the word of God. It's what God inspired the Apostle Paul to write right here. So we can have confidence. We can have assurance. We can know that it is a promise. Verse 15. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. We who are alive, supposing that's us, supposing it happens today, we who are alive, what would happen in this scenario if, it, if the coming of the Lord, that means the second coming of the Lord, were to happen today, what would happen? We who are alive and, and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. He means that those who have already fallen asleep or have died, they are going to be receiving their resurrected body upon the return of Christ. We're going to see them coming in their resurrected bodies and Christ coming from the, in the sky, on the clouds. We're going to see Him visibly, tangibly, really, actually. He's going to come like that with all of the saints 
who have already died. And then we, when we see their resurrected bodies, glorious bodies coming, descending from heaven, our own bodies are going to be instantly transformed in the twinkling of an eye. That's what he means in 15. We're not going to actually die a regular physical death, but instantly, in the twinkling of an eye, our bodies are going to be transformed and we will have a body just like the saints in heaven currently or, or when they descend have a body. How do we know this? Well, that's what he says here in 1 Thessalonians, but he says it in another place. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. This is what will happen. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're all not going to die but we're all going to be changed or transformed instantly, that quickly, when the dead saints who are alive as spirits descend with Christ, when we see their immortal bodies, instantly our bodies will be transformed and be like theirs. This is what the scripture teaches. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 1 Thessalonians 4.16 More about this return of Christ. 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Who is going to bring this about? Well, Christ will. And who will come with him? The angels will come, and the voice of an archangel will accompany him. The trumpet of God, as 1 Corinthians 15 said, the last trumpet... Many trumpets are sounded. Trumpets are going to sound in the future as well in terms of end time events. But the last of all those trumpets will accompany the return of Christ. It says in 16, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. That shout will be like the sound of a strong and powerful, glorious archangel. That's the way it will happen. So it's not going to happen secretly. It's not going to happen in a corner. It's not going to happen in the wilderness. Remember, in Matthew 24, 23, and 24, Jesus warned us. He told us to be on guard. He said, there's going to be false Christs and false prophets who arise and say, look, he's in the wilderness. Look, he's over there. No, he's not going to be in a secret place. He's going to be in a very visible place coming down from heaven, and it's going to be a very loud event, a very obvious event. Nobody's going to miss it. Nobody's going to miss what is actually happening. It's not going to happen in secret and private ways. It's going to happen in a very public way. And this, it says in 16, The dead in Christ shall rise 
first. The dead in Christ who rise first, that's the same as verse 14, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, who have already died, these are known as the dead in Christ. They will rise first. That's why I said when they descend from heaven with Christ, they will be in physical, immortal, glorified bodies. Those bodies in which they will live forever and ever. But then what will happen? That's the sequence. It's verse 17, our part. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. They rise first, the dead in Christ. Then we who are alive, as it said earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed, will be changed, and in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, we're going to be transformed. Our perishable, mortal bodies will instantly become an immortal, imperishable body, and we will reside in that body for all eternity. That's the way it will happen. Verse 17 says, We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. When that incident happens, when we are caught up like that, that's when we will be transformed immediately to, from being natural to being supernatural in terms of having an eternal, immortal body. Now, a word of clarification. You see in 17, it says, We shall be caught up together. Caught up together. You have heard the word rapture. The word rapture. The word rapture, in, in English, we don't use it very often, but sometimes we might say we are enraptured, enraptured, or caught up with something, caught up in some emotion, perhaps because of a song or, or, or a poem or a relationship. We are enraptured by something. We're caught up with it. That's the Latin word, um, uh, the rapture or rapture that comes into English translated as caught up. So you have heard of the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. The rapture of the church in terms of being an actual incident that's true. However, I submit to you that the typical meaning of the word rapture that is defined in books and movies popularly in many, many places in the average Christian bookstore, the rapture of the church in that way is not, in its uh, meaning and definition, it does not match the Bible. Because according to them, the rapture of the church is a separate and distinct incident from the second coming of Christ. They say the rapture of the church happens before a seven-year tribulation, of great tribulation on the earth, we will all miss it. We will all go up to be with Christ in heaven. And for seven years, those who remain on the earth are going to suffer immensely. And then after the seven-year period, at the end of it, that's the actual return of Christ. They say, this passage, this is one of their key passages, misinterpreted. They say, this passage teaches the rapture of the church, not the second coming. But I submit to you that 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 is not the case. Notice in verse 15. What did he call this incident in 15? He called it the coming of the Lord. Well, is there 
their first coming and a second coming we know, right? But is there also a third coming of Christ in the Bible? No. There is no third coming of Christ. There's either the first coming or the second coming, incidents related to the first and those related to the second. So there's the first and the second coming, or the return of Christ. And in verse 15, he called it the coming of the Lord. That's what he's talking about here. That's his subject, the coming of the Lord. This coming, he calls in verse 17, we, shall be, um, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. You see what I'm saying? Here he's calling the rapture and the second coming the same thing, the same event, the same incident. Not something separated by a span of seven years or however many number of years, according to other interpretations. It is the one and same event. When we are raptured up, that's when Jesus returns. He's coming again. That's what he says in this text. Then, verse 17 continues. It says, We'll meet them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. When we meet the dead in Christ, with Christ in the air, then we will never be separated from Christ ever again. We will always be with Christ for everything else that happens in uh, relation to His second coming. We will always be with Him. We will always belong to Him. We will desire nothing else, want nothing else, seek nothing else. We will be completely peaceful, content, uh, happy, joyful in being with Christ our Lord because we will see Him face to face and nothing else will matter to us. Which relates to another issue. Many people think of the life to come in terms of what kinds of enjoyments or what kinds of benefits they will experience. If, if they like to hunt, they're going to hunt in heaven. If they like to fish, they're going to fish in heaven. If they like to golf, they like, they're going to golf in heaven. If they love their pets, they're going to have their pets in heaven. If they like to do certain other things, read their novels, they're going to read novels forever and ever. This is the kind of thing people imagine and dream of. And some of the worst or basest of all this is in Mormonism and in Islam, they say you're going to have wives or women and enjoy the women forever and ever. You see, this is the kind of corrupt, depraved human heart, what it produces. The Bible, though, does not say anything about all of that. It says that we will be with Christ and that alone is what matters. That alone is what matters. We are with Christ forever. And if we are with Christ where there is perfection, where there is peace, where there is joy, where there is no affliction, no hardship, what else matters? I don't want to know and I don't need to know. All I want to know is that I'm going to see my Christ face to face and be with Him. We all will be if we truly believe in Him. We will always be with the Lord. And what should we derive from this? Verse 18, Therefore comfort one another with these words. The false interpretations and the speculations that come out of these passages will not bring you comfort. They will not bring you encouragement and hope. In fact, they will make you afraid, terrified, just as it did to the Thessalonians. When the false teacher said, Oh, you Thessalonians, some of you are here, some of you are not here anymore, some of you have died. That's because there's 
that those people were not true believers, those people missed the second coming of Christ, but you who are alive, you're going to see the second coming of Christ. The false teachers were making promises that way, false promises, and confusing them and discouraging them so that they could not be comforted upon the death of their loved ones in Christ. He says, no, that's not the point. The point is the very opposite, to have comfort. Now, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. They have no need to know about the times and the epics, meaning future events. Why? Because he had already taught them. When he was among them, he had taught them everything they needed to know. He was plain and clear when he was personally present with them to teach them the true gospel about the first coming and the second coming of Christ and anything else throughout the scriptures. He was with them long enough and his companions, missionary companions, were with them long enough for them to know to have a basic and sufficient understanding of these issues. That's why he says you have no need of anything to be written to you. So in that sense, they have no need. However, they have a need in in another sense. And what is that? Because it's always the case that there will be misinterpreters, false teachers, false prophets, deceivers, wicked men who pretend to be sheep, but inwardly they are actually ravenous wolves. They are pretenders. They are skilled and endowed with the, 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 the wiles of Satan to say what they do, to do what they do, to manipulate and exploit the people for their corrupt purposes. And he's saying, for that reason, that's why I have to write. And for that matter, why is the Bible written? The Bible is written so that we might believe, yes, but it's also written so that we might know when troubles arise, when misinterpretations arise, when false teachers arise, it shouldn't startle us, but we should have a place to go back to read and study and to calm our spirits, to calm our hearts, so that we might not be misled into believing something that's wrong. So in that sense, he wrote to them. Although, in terms of their basic faith, they had no need, because he had already told them. This also reminds us that the Apostle Paul is entirely consistent. A true teacher will have conviction about what he knows to be true, founded on the Bible, on the Holy Word of God, founded on the, on the Bible, and he'll maintain those teachings, those fundamental teachings, throughout his ministry. That's the way Paul was. And that's why he's writing and saying, this is the thing I told you before. What did he say? Verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. They know full well. They know because Paul taught them. They also know because Christ taught the same thing. Matthew 24, 42. When the day of the Lord comes, it will come like a thief in the night. Well, what does that mean? Thief in the night. Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would, not have, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. 
Christ returns without a given date. We don't know if it's going to be a, a, in, a, in this year, a, in 10 years or 100 years from now. We don't know a specific date. Nobody has ever known that. It is not recorded in the Bible. Which means if someone tells you he knows the date, the moment he tells you he knows the date, you know he's wrong. Right? Just like you know the Bible says not to worship idols. But if somebody comes along, a Christian so-called, comes along and says, Hey, you know what? There's a new way to worship God. We need to build an image of Christ or an image of this or an image of that. Let's worship this statue, this image. Let's worship it. No, you know he's wrong. That can't be true. So in the same way, the day or the hour we don't know. Because Christ said he's going to come like a thief in the night. Because if you did know, if you did know exactly, what would you do? You would do things accordingly, right? But because you don't know exactly, what does he expect us to do? He expects us to be ready, to be on the alert. So that the thief in the night, Christ who comes unexpectedly, will not overtake us. 1 Thessalonians 5. He will not overtake us, but he will overtake others. Who are the others? 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. While they are saying, you see, misinterpreters, false interpreters of these incidents will say, everything is fine, everything is peaceful, everything is happy, no destruction, no harm, no danger, peace and safety. They're going to shout it, preach it, peace and safety. Live as you please, do whatever you want, it doesn't matter, peace and safety to you. God bless you and be on your merry way. Do whatever you want, live however you please. And don't think about the return of Christ like a thief in the night. Don't worry about it. Well, people who teach that and people who believe that, what will happen to them? Verse 3 says, Then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Why? Because they're not on guard. They're not on the alert. They're not waiting and they're not living the way Christ wanted them to live. They're not looking at the signs of the times in expectation of the return of Christ. What are they doing? They're living as they please. They live in sin. They do whatever they want. They don't repent of sin. They don't believe. They're not true believers. And then what will happen to them? Sudden destruction. Sudden destruction. Christ is the thief who will bring about sudden destruction of wicked people's households. That's the analogy. Not, not only is that analogy used, but the analogy of birth pangs upon a woman with child. Suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Sudden birth pangs upon a woman also. There's no escape. When the birth pangs come, then the woman bears the child. Correct? Eventually that happens. So, in the same way, the... Destruction on unbelievers, destruction on the people who are claiming that everything is going to be peaceful and safe, upon them there's going to be sudden pain. Upon them there's going to be sudden harm. Upon them there's going to be something that they did not expect because they weren't living accordingly. 
But will this be the case with true believers? Verse 4. Will will it be the case with true believers? Verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. You know, the return of Christ is imminent or it is soon in the biblical definition of that. But when it says that the return of Christ is that way, is it going to be a surprise? Is it going to be sudden? Is it going to be without signs? Is it going to be completely unexpected of true believers? Is that the case? He says in verse 4 that that's not the case. For us, we who believe when Christ returns, Christ is not going to overtake us like a thief in the night. He's going to overtake unbelievers like a thief in the night. Not us. And why not us? Because, verse 5, For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. We are sons of light, sons of day. That is, the light of Christ, the light of the word of Christ, we know, we believe, we live in expectation of his return. So when he returns, it's not going to be completely new or sudden to us. We're expecting it. We're living for it. We're studying it. We want to know. We've read what the Bible says. So we are of the daytime and of the light. That's who we are. We're not of night and darkness. And if we were of night and darkness, how would we be? Um, Actually, first in verse 6, how will we be as believers? So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. The dark people, the night people, they fall asleep in a moral and spiritual sense. They fall asleep, but that's not the way we are. In a moral and spiritual sense, we are on the alert and we are sober. We stay alert, as Christ said in Matthew 24. We have to be on the alert. We're living day by day in the expectation that we will see our Lord. We will see Him either by our own death or by His return. We will see our Lord. So we live soberly. We live with alertness. We are on guard. We know that there is a thief out there. We do know that there are dangerous things out there. We live the day-to-day life in a good way, in a good fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Every good soldier does not entangle himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as soldier. Right? We have been enlisted, so we have to be ready and on guard, ready for the battle, ready for the danger. So we're not asleep spiritually and morally, but we are on the alert and sober. But the wicked world, the unbelievers, and even false believers in the churches, what happens to them? Verse 7, For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. He's listing just basically the one sin, explicitly drunkenness, But he just uses that because that's a typical sin of the night. Although there are a couple of other typical sins of the night, drunkenness is one of them, right? And he says, 
that people who don't care, people who are not on the alert, people who aren't sober, they literally get drunk and they also get drunk spiritually. Because they are drunk spiritually, they get drunk physically. They're drunk spiritually in that Satan has intoxicated them with false beliefs. Satan has intoxicated them with false beliefs, with a hard heart, with a desire to practice sin. So when nighttime comes, the only thing on their mind is, is drinking their, their liquor and getting drunk. That's all that they care about. They don't care about anything else. So in the middle of the night, is the drunkard alert and sober? No. And if we behave like them, practicing sin, whatever our sins may be, then we will be just like them, sleeping at night when we should be on the alert, getting drunk at night when we should be sober. But we should not be, verse 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Here, now, he does use the analogy of a soldier. The breastplate of faith and love. If we are sober, if we are alert, if we are on guard, we'll have our breastplate with us, which is faith and love. We have faith in Christ, we have love toward God, and we have love toward our neighbor or our brother. We have these because God has first loved us. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. He has granted us faith, He's granted us repentance, and this is our breastplate. It will protect us right here from arrows coming and piercing our chest. We have faith and love. We need these in this battle of the Christian life. Not only do we have that, we have a helmet. The helmet is needed so that no uh, darts or arrows of the evil one come and hit us on the head and we get put out just like that. But we have a helmet, which is the hope of salvation. This salvation is strong. It is secure. It is the, the security in which we have put our hope. We hope in this salvation. It will not be shaken up. It will not be taken away from us. It is something we have that is foundational. It is stable. It's strong. And it will protect us from all dangers that happen in this world. And that's why he says in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We, the people of God, we who are in Christ, whether the dead in Christ or those alive in Christ, we are not destined for the wrath of God. The wrath of God here, what he means here, is the wrath of eternal punishment. The wrath of that we have um, deserving of, we are deserving of because we are in sin. He's saying, because we are saved in Christ, that wrath is not against us anymore. For example, first, uh, or Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This wrath of God is against all mankind because of our sin. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners... 
Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. See, the wrath of God was against us, but now that we're in Christ, this wrath of God is released. We are saved from it. It will not be meted out against us so that we experience death. We're no longer his enemies. We are reconciled to him and we have eternal life. 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He commends them for their conversion. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9. One nine, He commends them for their conversion. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Who delivers us from the wrath to come. What is this wrath to come? The wrath to come is its day of judgment when God meets out true justice on unrepentant, wicked sinners. That's what will happen. But because we have been converted, we have turned from idols to serve the living God, that's not going to happen to us. We are waiting for Christ to return from heaven and then He will give us the blessings of full and eternal salvation. We're saved from that wrath. This is important to say because others have interpreted 1 Thessalonians 5.9 and even 1 Thessalonians 1.10 to mean that the last amount of judgment God heaps on the earth, that's going to be a time of wrath, but they say in Thessalonians that's what Paul means. Paul means that when... Christ returns and he judges the world on the earth and destroys all the wicked people and destroys the heavens and the earth, that that last wrath at that time, that that's what Paul means. We are saved from that. That's what he means. However, I think properly understood, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 5.9 should be a reference to this eternal wrath of God that we will not experience because now we are saved from our sins by the blood of Christ. Now verse 10, 1 Thessalonians 5:10. Why is it that we obtain salvation and not the wrath of punishment? Because of verse 10, who died for us that whether we are awake or asleep we may live together with him. Because Christ died for us, us, we, we believe He died for us. Because we believe He died for us, then we are saved from the wrath of God and we obtain salvation. That's the context here. He died for us. Which also reminds us, are we in this world to be saved merely from physical danger? Are we in this world to be saved from the extinction of our physical bodies? 
Are we in this world to enjoy whatever we want to enjoy? Why are we in this world? Why is it that Christ came into the world? What did he accomplish when he came into the world? And why are we in this world? How are, or, and why are we in this world in relation to the coming of Christ? It says in verses 9 and 10, so that we might be saved by the death of Christ. He came into the world to save us from our sins, which deserve the wrath of God's eternal punishment for our sins. That's why he came into the world. He did not come into the world to make us fat and happy. He did not come into the world to give us all the pleasures that we want. He did not come into the world to give us everything that we can imagine that we think we need as humans, as sinful humans. That's not why he came. He came because he died for us so that we might have eternal salvation to be with Christ forever and ever. Furthermore, verse 10, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Not only did he come to save us from sin, he came to sanctify us from sin. Not only to save us from eternal punishment, but in the meantime, after we are saved from sin, after we become born again, after we are in Christ, we become Christians, then what should our life be? Does it mean we can go back to our old ways? Or does it mean now that we must be conformed and transformed? It says in verse 10, if we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. That is, if we are awake now, what should we be doing? Living with Christ. If we are asleep, what, you, what will we be doing? We will be living together with Christ. So the dead in Christ are living with Christ now in spirit only. We who are alive live with him in spirit and body right now. Then upon his return, the dead in Christ and we who are alive, all of us will live with Christ physically and in spirit forever and ever. That's the purpose. That's the goal of Christ coming into the world in relation to us. To live together with him. Nothing else matters in life than living together with Christ. And verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. He acknowledges and commends them for encouraging and building up each other. And that's good. They have been doing it. But they need to press on. They need to endure. They need to persevere to encourage and build up one another. Because it's very easy for one to slip into sin. It's very easy for mistaken ideas or mistaken beliefs to come into the mind. Because we are bombarded. There is a, a loud voice out there in the world and even inside of churches where this loud voice, this clamorous voice, is begging for your attention and enticing you and trying to entrap you. And because of this, we have to shake that off. We need to put barriers on those things, encourage one another, and build up one another. Find someone else. Find someone else who needs help. Find someone else who needs to be encouraged spiritually. Say a word, or write a note, or do a kind deed. And keep doing that. Take the focus off yourself and your own grief about whatever it may be and focus on others. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your brother. That's the way it should be. And if we are living that way, living in godliness, living in the anticipation that we will be with Christ, then we are living according to what God fundamentally desires us to expect and, and hope for. That is, always, whether in this life or in the life to come, be united to Christ. Be with Christ and live for Him. That's the reason we study the Bible. That's the reason we study eschatology. To live with Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.